I'd like to invite you to find page 1066 in your Sanctuary Bible, 1066. And our reading today, it says, starts in John um, 1331, but I'm going to start in 1321, uh, and you'll see why in just a minute. But to give a little background about the passage that we're looking at today, John chapter 13 takes place squarely uh, in the middle of Jesus' last night. It's uh, Monday, Thursday, as we know it. It's the Last Supper, Passover dinner that he's having with his disciples. And the supper is mostly over now, but he's still talking to his disciples. And a little later from this point on, he's going to engage in something called the high priestly prayer. It's a prayer that he says, a prayer of protection, a prayer of ownership over his disciples. But at this point, we get to this part of the narrative where we're right between where Judas gets up to leave to betray Jesus, and Jesus then also confronts Peter and says, you will uh, not betray me, but you will deny that you know me in just a little while. And Peter is, is heartbroken to hear that, that, that Jesus would think, even think that of him, but of course we know later on that that is exactly what he does. And so imagine that this this passage is bookended or is, is the meat inside the sandwich and the, the pieces of bread in the sandwich is the betrayal of Judas on one side and the denial of Peter on the other. But yet Jesus in the middle takes space to talk about his desire to glorify his father and also this commandment that he gives to his disciples that they should love one another. And this stands in contrast to both the betrayal of Judas on one side and the denial of Peter on the other side. And so Jesus uh, has this really great sense of where to say things. In the middle of all of human failing, Jesus yet stands up and says, I'm going to redeem you and I'm going to give you love for each other and your love for each other will be a reflection of our community together as believers. So with that introduction, I'd like to go to our reading. I'm going to start at John 13:21. And um, then keep on reading. Uh, I'll go 31, 21 through um, 30, and then 31 through 34, uh, 35. John 13. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth. One of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciples and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. As soon as Jesus took the bread, now pay attention here, this is terrifying. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you are about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. 
When he was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, and we ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to focus on one word first, and we'll come back to it later too, but I want to focus on this one word because I don't think I ever really understood what this word means, and that word is glorify. How many of you use this word once a week? Outside of church, okay, I mean, we can use it at church, but, you know, have you been like at the, at the water cooler and say, yeah, I really glorified my coworker about the job that they did, or I really glorified my wife because, you know, she's a great mom and a great wife. Or, we don't talk that way. And growing up, I had no idea what glorified meant. The only way I knew what glorified meant was that I came to church. But even then, church kind of got it wrong. I think what I thought growing up was that glorify meant I sing a song about you. That's what glorify means. And if you grow up in the church, especially the evangelical church, it means I'm singing a song about you. It means I kind of think you're great, I guess. You know, it means I, I think there's something good about you that I want to draw attention to. And that's kind of what glorify means. But actually, in the context where Jesus was operating, when he's talking about glorifying, it had a very different purpose. To glorify somebody was, in essence, to raise their honor in that society. I've spoken about this before, but not everybody has heard it, and so I'm going to go back a little bit, is that in that culture, honor or lack of honor was really central to life. Whether, you, whether people thought good things about you or not really had a huge impact. Uh, they weren't like Americans. Americans are like, you don't like me, I don't care. Especially, like, say, if you're from New Jersey or something. You don't like me? <laughs> Fine. Uh, I'm not going to lose a wink of sleep over that. That's American. That's individualism. But in that culture, if people thought good things of you, that was important to you. It opened up all sorts of doors for you. It gave you access to power. It gave you access to wealth. It gave you access to food. On the other hand, if think people thought poor things of you, if, they, if your honor was low because either you had done something wrong or your parents had done something wrong long before you were born, you know, it wasn't quite fair. It just was. If your honor was low, there were all sorts of doors that were closed to you. There were all sorts of opportunities that you couldn't have. And so to glorify somebody was to raise their honor because you would say good things about them. It's not just because we want to say good things about somebody, but because their honor matters to us, and it matters to us that they're seen in a good light and thus are, have a redeemable persona in the community. This is how Jesus is talking about the Father being glorified in him and, and the Father glorifying Jesus in himself. Because, and this is all preparatory, this is all sort of in advance, it's, it's a defense of sorts. 
What is about to happen, and Jesus has told his disciples over and over again, is that the Son of Man is about to face a cataclysmic event in which his honor will go from here all the way down here. This is what's going to happen to the Son of Man. And he says, I've told you many times that this is going to happen to me. The Son of Man will be crucified, will be betrayed and handed over, and he'll be crucified And in that culture, to be crucified was a real low business, okay? Uh, If you ever read that medical account of what a crucifixion was like, you you won't be able to eat for a few days afterwards. It's horrible. But not only that, it's beyond all that, it's humiliating. The whole purpose of crucifixion was to humiliate you to death, basically. To put you in such a hopeless and helpless situation that you would just die there writhing in agony so that the whole world could see. They never, never, ever, ever crucified somebody in private. Can you imagine? Let's let's crucify somebody. Let's build this big fence that nobody can see inside and let's take this person in here and put the cross in there and crucify them in a place where nobody can see them or hear them. That was pointless. That would be a big waste of energy for the Roman Empire. No. When you crucify somebody, you do it as publicly as possible. You do it on the side of the road so everybody walking by has to look at it and remember how powerful Rome is and how humiliated this person is. So that's the point of crucifixion, is it's a public humiliation to death. Jesus is telling his disciples, this is going to happen to the Son of Man. I'm going to be down here. So what do we need to do? The Father needs to be glorified in what I'm about to do. How can that be? How can that be? Right? He's always asking his disciples to think kind of upside down. Those who are the most humiliated will be the ones who are raised to the highest heights. And, conversely, those who have put themselves way up here in this lifetime, they will be brought low. Last week we saw that the blind are going to be able to see, and those who see have to become blind before they can truly see what Jesus has for them. So, to glorify isn't just to sing a nice song about somebody. To glorify is to prepare for a future humiliation so that it can be redeemed. God is going to be, God's image is going to suffer for three days, right? God's image is going to have a real black eye for three days. But at the resurrection, it's going to be completely rehabilitated. And this is what Jesus is talking about. In fact, he talks about it in this way. If you look at chapter 10, verse 18, when he talks about his own life, he says, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I have received from my Father. The Father's design is that I am going to be made low and brought up again. And I'm glorifying my father now because his name is going to be de-glorified in the future. So glorifying is a form of reversing a dishonor. Just remember that. If you can remember anything else, to glorify something is to reverse a dishonor that has happened to it. And we're going to come back to that a little, a little bit later um, when we talk about, uh, we, we're going to talk about how when we love each other, that's when we glorify Christ and the church, and we reverse the dishonor of what has been the church's dishonor. So, again, I want to look back at our text, and I want to come to this point where I, I mentioned earlier, I read a little early, about Judas. 
Judas is really this very interesting character in all the Gospels. We don't know enough about Judas. There's all these holes in the story, okay? I want you to think about this for just a second. I mean, if you were, um, if you were producing a play and Judas was one of the characters and you were the director or the producer and you would say, what's the question the director always asks? What's his, what's his motivation? What's his motivation? Why is Judas doing what he's doing? Why does he betray Jesus? No, nobody has a good answer to this question because the text itself just doesn't tell us. And that's actually quite interesting because when John narrates his gospel, he is a very omniscient narrator. You talk about a narrative, you, you say, these things happened because, and in very many places in John's gospel, when he's explaining the, the action and the activity, what's going on, he actually explains people's motivations. It's like this omniscient narrator who can see into people's wills and lives and what animates them. So John is very good at this. He says, this guy did this because of this. This happened because of this. It's all over the Gospel of John. But when we get to Judas's betrayal of Jesus, it's completely silent. Why does he, why does he do it? Now, and I, I really want this. Anyone out there, why does, Jesus, why does Judas betray Jesus? Just Shout it out. Why does he do it? What are some ideas in your head? Because Satan Because <laughs> that's good. Yes. Yes. He was exposed to Satan. Yeah. Good. Pride, maybe. Yeah. For money. Yep. That's a common, that's a common answer. Yeah. Yeah. Disappointment in Jesus. Good. This is a bright group. I like Jack's answer the best. Being the most obvious one, right? That's good. Um, I guess maybe you could go back upstream a, bit, a few steps and say, what, where, how did Judas get to the place where he was susceptible to Satan's intrusion into his life? Um, yeah, these are all, all of those were good. All of these are good, possible reasons. But the truth is we don't know. You know? Was he greedy? Did, was 30 pieces of silver, was he like, ah, that's just enough to get an Xbox? You know, I just, it, my friendship with Jesus over these last three years were kind of great, but, I, you know, that's, I've got these, I've got these plans. Maybe. Uh, the other is, and we talked about this last week, we have our categories that we want Jesus to fit into. We want Jesus to look like us. We want Jesus to vote like us. We want Jesus to act like us. We want Jesus to say smart things that we've already said so that we seem smarter, you know. And uh, if Judas thought that Jesus was going to be the Messiah in the categories of like a, a, a military religious leader. Maybe Judas thought, if I betray Jesus, if I tell some people with weapons where he's going to be and when, when no one else is around, that might force Jesus' hand to start pushing back with force finally and take this country back, right? So maybe Jesus was trying to force Jesus' hand into revealing himself as this military Messiah. Which failed, obviously. Jesus wasn't interested in that. Jesus went willingly with these people who arrested him. Um, other reasons? We don't know. Ju Judas. Um, now, um, this, this happens in Scripture elsewhere, too. And there's some interesting parallels that I want to draw your attention to. Just real quickly. Have you noticed that the beginning of Genesis sounds a lot like the beginning of John? Have you noticed that? In the beginning... 
in the beginning. They both start with this phrase, in the beginning. And in the beginning, we have God created the earth and everything in it, and then we, he creates this really troublesome creation, which is man and woman, and the serpent is there in the garden, and, you know, what, what is the motivation? Why, why is Eve... I mean, we understand what the, the serpent tempted her with, but why does she say yes to it? What is lacking in her life that she thinks this is a good deal? And then a little later, the third person alive, the third human being ever to exist, Cain and his brother Abel decide to make an offering to God. God approves of Abel's offering. Cain's offering he doesn't approve of or want. And the next verse, what does Cain do? Let's go out to the field. Oh, okay, yeah, let's take a walk. He kills his brother. The first death in the Bible is also the first murder in human history. You know, it's like the first time anyone ever actually died, it wasn't of an accident or disease or old age or anything. It was one person ending another person's life. But is that enough? I mean, here's the thing I'm saying is that we don't know what motivates Judas. We kind of don't know what motivates Cain either. Is that enough? God likes your offering more than mine. Is that enough to kill your brother? Is that enough? I'm just asking. I mean, depends on what their relationship was like. You know, we don't know. A wounded ego, I guess that's a really powerful thing, isn't it? A wounded ego, evidently, can do great violence, and it's capable of great evil, and it was. But we don't really know. In fact, there's actually a gap in the text, in the original Hebrew text there, that some interpreters have tried to fill as to what exactly is going on between these brothers, and it's actually missing. All we get is this one event where they offered a sacrifice, and the next thing you know, one of them is killing the other, but we don't know everything that happens in between. And I want to introduce you a concept that maybe is, it sounds a little counterintuitive, but sometimes I think God speaks to us in the parts that get left out. Does that make sense? God speaks to us in the parts that get left out. God, in his omniscience and his will and his wisdom, doesn't want us to know really what motivates Judas. It doesn't matter. It's just that Judas is capable of evil, and it, Judas was in a place where Satan had power over him, and that's a threat. Because if we were to say, oh, it's exactly this, right, then we could say, well, then we could avoid all those things by our own power. And then we would never do what Judas did. But I think God wants to leave us in a place where we would realize, well, you could do what Judas did, given the right circumstances, whether it's your ego or your jealousy or your avarice or anything else. The same thing with Cain. Why did he kill his brother with a bruised ego or what else? Well, I'm not going to fill in those blanks for you, God says, because I want that to be an open question for you in my divine providence of information. I don't want you to be able to settle on just one sin that's going to lead you to kill your brother. There's a whole raft of sins that will lead you to kill your brother. And you ought to be aware of all of them. This is how God's working, I think, even in the Gospel of John. So, God, so John says, I'll tell you about five other people's motivation in this book, but I'm not going to tell you about Judas's motivation because that has to remain a mystery to you. That has to remain an unexplained frontier so that you don't ever get complacent or comfortable in thinking that you could master what's evil inside of you. Well, as I said, 
Uh, I'll just quote Jeremiah 17.9. And I'll quote it from the King James Version because it really hits home. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Like the King James is one of the, is one of the very few uh, translations that has the word desperately, which I like because it is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can know it? Who can know what we are capable of? Who can know what we would do with a bruised ego or with our greed or with our pride or with Jesus not fitting into our categories. Evidently, we could do a lot of things that we probably don't want to think about. So, here we are. This impending evil where Judas is about to go out and betray Jesus, and Peter is about to deny Jesus, that Jesus says, I am going to give you now a new commandment. And the new commandment is related to both of these things. It's not an answer to why all this happens. It doesn't satisfy but it compels, okay? It doesn't give us an answer to, to what the motivation is. That would be satisfying, but, but this not knowing kind of compels us, and so it is with this new commandment. The commandment is to go and do something. To love one another is actually a protection against the kind of evil that we would do to each other. I cannot do evil to somebody that I love first. It's impossible. It's impossible. That's the missing element, maybe, with Judas. It might be the missing element with Cain. Does he love his brother? If you love your brother, you could not do this. You could do a lot of other things, but you couldn't do that. If you love somebody, you won't murder them over a bruised ego. You won't betray them. You won't let them down in their darkest hour. You won't walk away from them when they need you. And this is a commandment for the moment, but it's not actually going to be followed in the moment because Jesus is in the middle of this with his disciples and they're going to fail him a few more times that night. It's actually a commandment for the years ahead. This is a forward-facing commandment from that time on and it's a commandment to the entire church, to all believers, all followers of Jesus. And it's part and parcel with what it means to glorify Christ. I could sing a song about glorifying Christ, but the way to truly glorify Christ, the way to truly reverse his bad honor, or to redeem him, the bad honor that he has in this world, is for me to love you, and for you all to love each other and to love me. That's how we reverse this thing. That's the commandment. Loving each other reverses the shame and dishonor uh, that are on the church. And there's a lot that's on the church right now. And there almost always has been, except for, it's very interesting, early in the church history, before they had made too many really big mistakes, although you read Acts and you find out that they make some some mistakes almost right from the get-go, the people who were opposed to the Christian church early on actually made up stories about them that weren't true because they didn't like what they were doing. And so they, they would see the practice of communion and say, they're cannibals, right? You know, because of how they talked about, this is my body, this is my blood. Oh, they're cannibals, you know? Or they would, they would make up stories about what life was like inside the church. None of that was true, right? And so they had to love their way out of it. They had to be such a loving community that that stuff just wouldn't stick to them. It would just sort of fall away, and it did. 
But nowadays, the stories are true. This is the sad thing, right? The stories about the church pretty much are true. <laughs> Whatever people out in the world are saying about the church, unfortunately, in a lot of cases, it's true. If the, out in the world they say the church is full of hypocrites because they say one thing, but they actually do the same, they do what they say they don't, we shouldn't do. Um, if, if we have pastors asking their congregation for private jets, which has not happened yet in this church and may not happen uh, for the next year or so, but we do have some travel plans. But, you know, when the pastor asks the church for a private jet, dear Lord, help us. I mean, my job is hard enough without these other pastors making it hard for me. And there's no doubt that my conduct in this world maybe makes it harder for other pastors because I'm not the most patient driver in this world, and I've honked at a few people with my car. Uh, I haven't asked for a private jet, but we'll see, what, you know, we'll see what's coming of it. You know, the church does a bunch of crazy things because it's made, out of, made up of people who are broken, sinners, fallen, who desperately have a desperately wicked hearts that nobody can understand or know. And um, so the stories are true, which is all the more reason for us to love one another. Loving one another is that outward sign that the world can catch on. It's like the passenger in my family car who said, you know you Nelsons, she didn't know, but you Nelsons seem like you really love each other. She, she wasn't there for the, you know, the brattiness that the kid, us kids had with each other, but we did love each other. So the, so the challenge is, do we love each other in a way that's sacrificial, in a way that's giving, in a way that's caring, so that people who look in go, well, maybe those stories aren't true. Or maybe even if they are true, these people seem like they have something that we want. And we're going to reverse this dishonor that the church has, and we're going to reverse the dishonor that Jesus has received at the cross. And glory, true glory, is going to land on Jesus, and it will land on our fellowship. So that's, that's that part. But I want to just leave us with a few things, a few ideas maybe that we can go with. Um, one is, and I'm speaking to myself here, but maybe to all of us, to set aside my ego. Set aside my ego. You know, I, I wonder if we think that there are some people that have more of an ego problem than others. I don't think so. I think everyone has an ego problem. It's built into us. It's our, it's our default nature. This is the default human condition to react violently when we feel slighted. When our honor has been hurt, we, we our, you know, our fur backs up on the, on the back of our back, and we, we're ready to jump in. Love is the antidote to that. Love is the antidote to an ego that's out of control. You know, and what's funny is I sleep better thinking about how much I love someone rather than how I'm going to get even with them for hurting my ego. It's amazing. God is good that way. The other thing is we need to, again, check our categories when it comes to Jesus. Are we expecting Jesus to look like us, think like us, talk like us, vote like us? Are we expecting that? Or is Jesus going to come and make something new and keep going? He resists that. He doesn't have time to be trapped into our categories. He goes ahead and does his own things. There are some things he cannot do for us. We have to follow him. And God isn't concerned with us just being satisfied. He wants to take this compelling and adventurous journey with him. 
to a place that glorifies him and, and his church. And then finally, and this, is, this sounds like bad news, but it's really the good news. And the, and the bad news, good news is that you actually can't love people, which you may object to because you may love your spouse, you may love your children, you may love your parents, which is all great, and it's, in a sense it's true, but not really. Do I have your attention? I think I have everybody's attention now. You can't really love. The Bible tells us, not on your own, we learn to love because he first loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We only love, truly love, not the shadow of love that we have in this world, but the true love. We only truly love when we received his love. And it's only out of that, only out of that redemption and that new life that he freely gives us that we can really do this long term that where we can make loving each other a lifestyle rather than a one-time thing because we have to or it seems right to in the moment. Loving each other can become a long-term lifestyle, a way of life. But how does that happen? Do you remember the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5? What's the first one? Love. Isn't that funny? It's not a coincidence. The fruits of the Spirit are love. From which, if you have love, you're going to sleep well. Like I said, if you have love, joy and peace will flow. Gentleness, kindness, uh, patience, self-control, all of those flow out of the first one. From the Spirit giving us the ability to love. So remember, you can't love, but the Spirit makes you into a lover of people. He has that power. And God says, so so the commandment is truly not that onerous the new commandment that Jesus gives. Love one another, and by the way, my spirit will make you or help you to do this. And by doing so, you will reverse the dishonor that's on me, you will reverse the dishonor that's on the body, and the whole world will want what you have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus preaching so directly to his disciples at the Last Supper and preaching through these years to us today. Father, help us to love one another with the help of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.